If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries Audible books in every genre imaginable business, classics, history, self development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30 day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash replay and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Currently, I am listening to the classic One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Black Fish, Blue Fish, Old Fish, New Fish. Okay, that's、This、genius. Go to audible.com slash replay. That's audible.com slash replay and get started today. And now we're really thrilled to be able to bring out,、uh, I think it's fair to say, possibly the most exciting、uh, political leader uh, uh, we have in our country right now, whether you agree with her or not. Right. And that is Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Thanks for coming. Glad to be here.、Um, we thought we'd start out with、uh, an easy question for、I'm、this、ready. audience. Okay. So we just had Evan Spiegel up here, 24 years old, who's built、uh, a very successful company. There's a lot of people out there who've built companies, but I think you've, you've expressed the point of view when talking to folks who've done this that they really. They really can't take full responsibility for building it. You haven't built that. Is that something you subscribe <laughs> to? And can you explain it? So, what I said is that we have all helped build the world in which others can then build more. You know, the way I think about this is it's sort of like collectively we all help plow the fields. You know, we help pay for the security, we help pay for the roads and the bridges, we help pay for the water, we help pay for the education systems, we help pay for the basic research. That's what we do in America. That's the social contract. And then from that, it creates the kind of environment where some people come along and boy, they lay down the seeds that grow amazing things. And God bless, good for them that they do that. It helps produce jobs for everyone else. It helps produce goods for everyone else. It helps produce prosperity for everyone else. But that's what we do together. And that's how I see it. So when you said it, were you saying it because you think people forget the shared part of it? Well, I said it because somebody asked me about the question about class warfare.、Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is about class warfare. What I think this is about is about how we grow more prosperous together. And we do some of that by investing and reinvesting in the basics, in the core, so that there's a real opportunity for growth and for innovation. You know, think about what it would be like to try to start a small business if you had to also hire your own police force to do it, if you had to build your own roads to do it. That would make it pretty darn hard. 
And so the way I see this is this is part of what has made America prosperous, and it's part of what really worries me today. Because that core investment, the part that makes us a place to grow businesses for the future, it seems to me we're just under-investing and under-investing and under-investing in that today. And as a result, we have an infrastructure that is crumbling beneath our feet. We have an education system that is failing millions of our young people. We have a research system right now where the front end, the core research, the part that only American America can be the patient investor over the long haul in that core research is getting harder and harder. It's so, drying up for NIH. These are powerful policy questions, right. and I this raise is, them because we need to talk about So them. this is a group of people here, especially in Silicon Valley. There's mm -hmm. a mentality of Silicon Valley. Libertarianism is a strong the idea that don't. it's a very strong ethos there. Do you think, and Silicon Valley has been an engine for growth across the country, mm -hmm. how do you look at the attitudes of Silicon Valley to start with? And then we'll get into the larger picture, but here's something that people are looking up to. Silicon Valley uh, people are becoming celebrities, the tech leaders are looked up to. Do you, do you think that they, how do you imagine they need to give back then? You know, I, look, I, I'm delighted to see people who want to get out there and, and try to build something new who want to innovate off something else. I just think that's fabulous. I celebrate it. I think that's like one of the most exciting things you can do is to start your own businesses, to have your own ideas, to get out there and fight but for it. But particularly in the tech community in Silicon Valley, is there anything that bothers you about it? That libertarian, what? I mean, the, the idea the, that The idea that, you know, there, there is a sort of sense that, you know, let's, let's just keep the government away from it as much as we can and just wait, uh, just go right. It, wait a minute. We're okay, I, I, we're okay out here by ourselves and, you know. I, come on. I, I think you actually do people an injustice by that description. Okay. You know, my, my sense of this world is that there are a lot of people who don't want to see regulations that they feel like hold back businesses. On the other hand, they want to see big businesses that stifle innovation. There are a lot of ways you can do that uh, to keep startups from being able to start, from being able to grow, from being able to innovate. But come on, everybody relies on the infrastructure we're all building. No one says, I'm going to take a bunch of babies and I'm going to educate them myself so they can be my work with me in the future. We invest in education. We do it together. We invest in roads and bridges and we do it together. And I don't think that's any different in Silicon Valley than it is anywhere else. If anything, a place that so values the innovation that comes from the mind, it, it, it seems to me is a place that values our fundamental, it values education, it values growth, and that's, that's a big part of where we make collective investment because we don't know what kid is going to be the kid who's going to come up with the next idea, but we're pretty darn sure that we're all going to be better off if all our kids get a better education. If we could take that whole distributed curve and move it over by getting it better educated, by giving them more opportunities. So you're, you've suddenly really exploded onto the scene. What do you Why do you imagine this is happening now? Is it your message is at the right time or that it's become fascinating to watch your prominence grow? Well, what, do you, what do you think is happening in this country politically and across uh, socially? 
to, to yeah. you describe it as, as explosion. I would describe it as 30 years, which feels really slow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because I am doing the same work I've been doing. Right. So why are, why just are about four when you years started now. with the bankruptcy stuff in as an academic? I started by studying families that failed. And I, I think a big part of that is because I came from a family that you know, was hanging on by its fingernails to our place in the middle class. And I, I started by studying the families that failed. I was, I was, by this point, I was a professor of law, and uh, I was studying the folks in bankruptcy. And I really started this research very much wanting to discover how they were really different, certainly different from me and from my family and, and, and the people I knew and cared about. And what unfolded over time was not only were they not different, they were us. They, it was America's middle class that was starting to fail. And, and so my research then expanded like, like other kinds of innovation. You kind of take off from one idea and go into the next. And it was about what's going wrong? What's happening to America's middle class? To me, the middle class and the strength of the middle class, the, the, the solid nature of the middle class, the dependability of the middle class was what defined America. You know, this is, this is what coming out of the Great Depression that we spent 30 years, 35 years, you know, this 40 years, 50 years, this is the heart of what it meant to be America, that we invested in the future. We invested in those things I was just talking about, in education. Uh, what did a grateful nation say to returning veterans? We'll give you a GI Bill, uh, NDEA loans, investments in state universities that made it possible, made it possible for a kid like me to go to college. I graduated from a, community, a commuter college that cost $50 a semester. You know, that was the America we were building. We invested in roads and bridges, in infrastructure, in power. Why? Not because we knew who was going to develop the next great business, but we were pretty darn sure they were going to need electricity. And so we all invested in creating those, those infrastructures. We in, let me just get one more because they are critical. We invested in research. And this was a remarkable thing that defined us as a country. At a time when nobody else was doing this, we made a big investment in research on the idea that if we built a big pipeline of ideas, that our children could build lives that we could only dream of. And we did that for nearly half a century. We made these so what investments. Happened? What happened? From your perspective, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Ronald Reagan was elected president. Okay. And it happened right here in California, right? They're the ones who sent him there. But I say that. <laughs> I say that only partially as a joke. It's a milestone. It's a turning point okay. in, in ideas that were changing. It's a. It's 1980. And what starts happening in 1980 is instead of the idea that we're going to grow this country by making these investments together and then let opportunity go crazy, investing in opportunity, that what's going to happen is they came up with another idea, supply-side economics, right, with trickle-down economics. And the basic, it had two parts to it. The first one was uh, to say, cut taxes. Cut taxes in good times, cut taxes in bad times, cut taxes for those at the top. And then how are you going to make that work 
Well, then the answer is you've got to start cutting investments. And that means cut investments in education, cut investments in infrastructure, cut investments in research. Um, NIH, look at what's happened to NIH research. Look at what's happened to all of our federal investment in research. As a proportion of GDP over the last 35 years, it's been cut nearly in half. Didn't it go right? way up under Clinton, though? Okay. So if you want to do how the chart works, as a proportion of GDP, it's going up. It, until about 19, late 70s, right, till the 70s as a proportion of GDP in the 70s. It starts leveling off, starts going back down as a proportion. There are upticks, but we never recover. It's like, it's like with NIH. We doubled the NIH budget in uh, the early 2000s, late 1990s. Does that sound fabulous? Except if we just left NIH on its projected budget where it needed to be uh, the adjustment for uh, research dollars don't go as far in medical research, right? You have to use a little different adjustment. We are down about 25% in effective spending over just the last 12 years in NIH. So you can, you can pick periods where it upticks, but the point is you look at the whole time period and the answer is we're not making the same kind of investments. At the same time, you could say this was the period that the internet took off. These great companies were created. Apple. Google, Apple, Google, Facebook, all the others. All so, these things, Microsoft. So, I mean, how did they somehow has, has change the world? They changed they the world They absolutely have. And from has America. there been innovation? You bet there has. But look at what's happened overall if we don't invest in opportunity, if we don't invest in creating a future. So you look from 1935 to 1980, right, when we're making all the heavy investments in education and in infrastructure and in research. And what happens to the 90%, not the top 10%, but the 90%? And the answer is, during that time period, they scoop up about 70% of all income growth in America. Okay, top 10% did better, but that's great. 70% are getting it. In other words, what happens is that as our country gets richer, our median family is getting richer, and as our median family is getting richer, our country is getting richer, right? That's what happens. 1980 to 2012, because that's where we've got the data, how does the 90% do? How much of the growth in income in that period of time did they get? The answer is zero. None. 100% of income growth in that time period went to the top 10%. So what's happened to us under supply-side economics is the median family, as America gets richer, the median family's not doing well. It's, it's not about opportunity, not just for some, but opportunity for all our kids. And here's where I think this becomes so important. This is not just about haves versus have-nots. This is really about what's the job of government? In part, it's to think about the long arc. How do you want a country to operate long arc? And the answer has to be that we've got to take every one of our children and just move them up as much as we can in terms of but their how, education. <clears throat> how can we, the, I'm yeah. sorry, how can the government think about the long arc when everyone in the government, including you as a senator, has got to start 
you get elected, you got to start raising money for the next campaign, you got to start making promises, you got to start thinking in terms, if you're a senator, in terms of six years, if you're a House member, in terms of two years, and different states, if you're a governor, maybe it's four years. How do you, how do you get the long arc in there? And, and most people in this audience think politics would rather be like, uh, like politics is broken. We don't so, want to be part of it. You know, there's another way I could reframe your question. And that is, that, or I could just state the fact she stated, and that is to say, look, we're held accountable every two years or four years right, or six but, years to our bosses. I'm held accountable to the people in Massachusetts. And if the people in Massachusetts don't think I'm doing my job, they can go do something about it. The way I think we get change in this entire system is I think we get change as we get more people engaged in the political process, as they hold more people like me accountable, and they hold more people across the government accountable. It's if there is real accountability, if there is real engagement, we will make better decisions so, as a country. I believe that. So talking about the tech industry, she's right. A lot of people in the tech industry, yeah, they've got a bunch of lobbyists in Washington, but by and large, as they go about their work and their day, they're, they're, just, they're very happy to sort of never think about the government, never think about what you need to do. Um, uh, the, some of our biggest tech companies have uh, done, you know, parked a lot of cash overseas and done a lot of things so they don't, they don't have to pay very much tax here, based, uh, you know, relative to the large amounts of money they make or the, they accumulate. Does that, how do we fix that? Does that bother you? So look, it's part of why I wanted to be here today. When you invited me, it's why I said yes. It's that I actually do want to see more people in the tech industry engaged in government. I want them to care about it. I want them to care, not spend every minute worrying about it. I get it. I, I wouldn't want to have to if I, this weren't my job now. Right. But I do want people engaged because it really does matter. It matters for the world in which, in the short run, you will grow your business. It matters in the long run for the world in which your children will grow up and the world in which your grandchildren will grow up. America will change profoundly if we continue down a path that says, we're only gonna invest in opportunity for a thin slice at the top. We're gonna privatize opportunity in this country. If that happens, we are not fundamentally the same country. What, we are what, not the country that innovates and creates a future. So you're driving a lot of Democrats crazy these days, which is fantastic. I'm doing my best. Yes, you're doing, mm -hmm. I know you are, and you're doing an excellent mm -hmm. job. Um, what do you think your role is? Are you, why, why do you, are you going to, you've said you're not running for president, or you are running for president, or you just no, don't I've said I'm not running for you're president. You're not president. Why are you not running for president? I'm not running for president. No, but why? Why? I have a full-time job. I get that, but other people like to be president. They, they, they go, they move on. They go ask them. I know, but why don't you want to be president then? I, Can't we just give it to you? No, I mean, no, I, I mean, many people want, it's normal to ask that. Why don't you, you think that you would be You started this with a question about right. explosion, and what I answered you is that I'm working on what I have worked on all my life. Right. And that is the health, the strength, And you couldn't do survival. that better as president? It, this is mine, of, of America's middle class. President. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking for every way I can to move the needle on that. And um, I thought I would spend my whole life as a teacher. That's where I thought I would be forever. And then I had an idea for uh, the consumer agency. Uh, 
I tell you the whole story about how we made that happen, which was very much with, with tech help is how that happened. Um, but then um, I, I ended up running for the United States Senate because I thought it was the best way that I would have a chance to move the needle on what I cared about. I'm out there doing my work as best I can. If you, I think it's the right work for me If today. you woke up tomorrow and changed your mind, do you think you could beat Hillary? You know, it's not so, it, that's not a question I put any energy into. I, I put energy into the question, if I wake up tomorrow morning, can I think of one more way to give more kids an opportunity to build something, to get more people to engage in that and say, yeah, that matters to me. I really do care about that. So talk, talk for a minute, because I, re I read the story of this in your book, uh, and you just referred to it. Uh, you were the driving force behind the, the uh, Consumer Financial, Financial Protection, Protection Bureau. Bureau. Named by those who would never want anyone to remember the name. Right. right? What did okay. you want to call it? Oh, I don't know, but I like Snapchat. Yeah, that's a good name. Wow. You know, think about that. Do you think how the world would be different if somebody else got to name the government agencies? You know, it could all, right, just work so much better. Okay, I'm in. All right, what all would right. you have called it? In no, I really okay. I, so I how, the consumer agency. How right, did right, tech right. help you do that? Okay. And how does it use tech? So, so two questions are, so here's what happens. So um, we're living in a world where many financial institutions, including the largest, some of the largest and most famous, had figured out that you could make a lot of money by tricking people on consumer financial products. Mortgages, it actually starts out in the credit card area. It migrates to mortgages and payday loans and lots of areas. And they figured out, man, there, is, there are billions of dollars to be made annually by just fooling people on, oh yeah, it's all down there in the fine print on page 31 in mice type that nobody could ever read in legalese. Mm -hmm. And you could just make a lot of money from folks. And man, this, I just thought, this is just fundamentally wrong. This is just, I get contracts, people both see both sides. We can talk about this from a libertarian point of view. Mm -hmm. These things have to be enforceable, but you've got to understand it, both sides. You have to have a chance to be able to do that. So anyway, I'm teaching law at this point, and, and there are a lot of laws that would prohibit many of the things that they were doing. And, but the problem was, all this law was scattered among a whole bunch of agencies, and none of those agencies saw their first job as protecting American families. That, that was nobody's first job. And nobody got past their first job, which meant this just was not happening. So these guys were just kind of turned loose to do what they want to do. I thought this was outrageous. Um, and so I had this idea for this little agency, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was what it eventually became. And the idea was to gather up the laws that were out there, give them to one agency, give that agency the tools to be able to enforce it, the resources to do it, and then, damn it, hold them responsible for doing it. So you had one place to go if there was a serious problem. And see if you can get this market cleaned up so that good products could compete with bad products on a level playing field, because everybody understood what they were buying, what they were seeing. So anyway, that was the idea behind it. So I go down to Washington, financial crash hits, I go down to Washington, and I start talking to people about this idea. And I will talk to anybody who will give me a listen. And 
people gave me the same two answers, almost everybody I went to see. And the first answer was, huh, that is an interesting idea. That could actually make a difference in how these markets work. And the second thing they said to me, almost across the board, was don't do it. And the reason they said don't do it is they said you can never win. There's no possible way you can win. Because this is going to cost some big banks real money. And they have lots of money to spend on lobbying. And they will sweep through this town with their lobbyists, and you will end up with nothing. With nothing. That's what you'll come away with. So ask for something small, ask for bunches of little things, and maybe you'll get one or two things and just count yourself lucky that you didn't get totally steamrolled by the banks. Now, I listened to that, and when people told me don't do it, I thought what they were saying to me was try harder. You know, it's kind of the Nancy Drew series of girl policymaker, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I'll just figure out how to do this harder. So I thought, how am I going to do this? We'll get organized. First conference call I had, I think had three people, which I think legally does not qualify as a conference call. But, um, you know, three becomes six, and then it becomes 12, and it becomes 24, and you kind of go off. And then it began to hit me and others who were explaining this to me, organized by groups. So get some groups involved in this who yeah, it's not their first thing, but it's somewhere on their list. And I always just say on this one, God bless the AFL-CIO. They said, this affects our members. Yeah, we'll, we'll pitch in. We'll be part of this. And AARP said, we'll be part of this. SEIU said, we will be part of this. Um, NAACP said, count us in. We want to be part of this. Uh, uh, Partnership for Women and Children said, yeah, we want to be part of this. La Raza. Ultimately, we got over 100 groups involved and we still between us had about a dollar 85 to spend on this but here was the difference and here's why i say you just it was a moment in time this couldn't have happened i don't think even five years earlier the fact that we could do all of this by email and kept pushing out to groups that we could facebook this that we could get out and find cheap ways to communicate to people all across this country. And no, not everybody in America woke up every morning and said, it's today the day we get the consumer agency. But by God, enough did. Enough people pushed and pushed and pushed and wrote or telephoned uh, their senators, their congressmen and congresswomen. And, and here comes the best part. Actually, there's another little twist in this story. So we finally, Get this thing up and running. And the banks are saying, no, never, it'll never happen. I mean, they really are. They said, we will kill this agency. That was the language their lobbyists were using in print for attribution. We will kill this agency. Financial reform will not go through with this agency. We struggle, we push. God bless Barney Frank. He jumps in, he pushes it through the House. We get it through the House, and then it goes over to the Senate which was always going to be the place where the bankers figured they could fight this thing off. It goes to the Senate Banking Committee. And the Senate Banking Committee, I still remember the day. It's in Banking Committee, it's back and forth, the whole financial reform. Will it have a consumer agency or will it not have a consumer agency as part of it? A lot of talk back and forth. I can remember the Friday morning when I got the phone call. And the call was, the agency is dead. You're not going to get it. 
And I said, why not? And what happened? And they said, they're going to report the bill out of committee, and it just won't have the consumer agency in it. In other words, they were going to kill it, but nobody would ever have to vote against it. And I said, couldn't we get a vote? Just even if we're going to lose the vote. And they said, no, because nobody wanted to be on record voting against the interests of people who take out mortgages and credit cards. But there were still some who wanted to be able to help the banks out here. So the idea was just to smother this little agency before, just smother it in the crib before it would be reported out. And so I said, how long have we got? I still remember this call. I said, how long have we got before it's going to be public? And they said, about three weeks, because there are other things that still have to be cleaned up on you know, swaps and derivatives and other parts of the bill before it's ready to come out. And I remember getting on the phone as soon as I hung up and with the folks who were working on this and said, we got three weeks to do everything we can just to get a vote. Let's just get a vote. Because my view was, I didn't care if it made a lot of folks in Washington angry. I wasn't looking for a job there. Um, my job was to do what I could to try to get this consumer agency through. I, I'm a teacher. And that's how it happened. So you, so, but you didn't get the job. You also well, We got the agency. You got the agency. That's what I cared about. Right. We got the agency. And we got it. Not because we spent... Do you know the banks were spending more than a million dollars a day lobbying against this agency and financial reform? We pushed back against that. We beat the biggest, toughest lobbyist in Washington. And we did it by just having people who were connected online, who pushed hard enough, who made it okay. embarrassing enough, who got enough people, who wrote enough articles. This, this is, this, it made it out there. It is an exciting story. And it's it an is an exciting story. story. I still but, get excited. And it's very Mr. Smith goes to yep. Washington. I get it. But do you think people feel that way about politics? Like, you're rather enthusiastic, but I, I don't, you don't see that much. Do you, know, you don't see it. You don't, because people get disgusted you know, with it. I have to I, tell you, what, how it, do you get... It's not enthusiasm about politics. It's enthusiasm about what you can do. I mean, do you realize how the world changed when we got that consumer agency through? That little agency has been operational now for, I think it's just under four years. It has already forced the biggest financial institutions in this country to return about $5 billion dollars directly to people they cheated. I Just think about that and talk about a warning shot across the bow. So That's government no, that I, works. I, do, I, I get that. And, and, I, and as soon as I go home, I'm running for mayor of San Francisco. You Good. inspired me. Um, but I have other goals uh, that aren't as nice. So um, I would be a terrible politician. Um, I just thought about it. Yes, you it. would. I would be a terrible yeah. politician. Um, that's okay. Is, Lots of people said that so, to me. So do you think politics is broken? Because do you think, and, and the second part is, and I do want to relate it to tech, um, a lot of what's going on in the tech economy is affecting jobs by making, you know, Larry Page has talked about this, that you're going to need fewer jobs when you get self-driving cars, you don't need drivers, you don't need this. A lot of what's happening in tech is reducing jobs, is it has the potential to reduce jobs, has the potential to um, the instant gratification economy, which we talked about. Taking a job of a cab driver 
and letting someone who has another job maybe happens to have a car work as an Uber driver for certain. How do you look at this changing economy? This is this is a big part of of Silicon Valley right now. So this goes back to where I started. So you know. Maybe I am turning into a great politician because I keep saying the same thing. Right. Uh, but <laughs> and you're very good at it, by the no. way. No. Yeah. But but look, that really is the heart of it. Our only chance for survival is to innovate our way out of this. We're not going to stop tech so that lots of people can work. You know, that's that's like saying, oh, let's get rid of heavy equipment and have everybody dig with a spoon when we're going to try to, you know. <laughs> Because that way lots of people will be employed. Uh, no, that's not going to work. But it means we have to invest in the places where it matters. And, and basically, the, the two keys for that, it's brains. we got to invest in brains. And we have to invest in the people who are willing to go do the long, long arc research. The ones who are, you know, who a generation ago figured out the things we use now. We have to be willing collectively to make those investments because we can't just say, oh, we're going to figure out the application of something. No, you don't know where it's going to come from. You've got to be willing to invest in poetry majors. You've got to be willing to invest in people who are doing not just the research that has a 97% chance that it's going to produce something. You've got to be willing to, to invest in the, in the home runs that don't come very often, but that completely change your vision of the world. Do, Those do, are the investments. Do you imagine you the current, make. you know, we are going to another presidential election. It is an election where we will have a new president, not, not an existing president. Do you imagine the candidates that are there have that kind of can they be that bold? Because you've pushed, most people feel like you've pushed Hillary Clinton to be a little bolder, move, moved her off to the left a little. Do you think you have or not? You know, I, look, I want everybody to be bolder. That's, I, we need boldness in our leadership. We need lots of people who will get out there and Including talk about Including people who disagree the, with you, should absolutely, they be Absolutely, absolutely. Look, that's how you get better. You listen to people who don't agree with you. you. You listen to the part of their argument. You say, dang, you know, that's a piece I should pull back in and I should reaccount for. Also, you need data. You need information. And people who disagree with you are sometimes the best at coming up with some facts that are not terribly convenient or things so, you want to look Abby, at. Are you, are, are you conscious of pushing your party to, to be more to the left, or radical, whatever you want to call it, or bolder, or whatever. I mean, how do you describe Are you populist? Are you... Yeah, I'm a populist. You liberal? Bet. What, what, would, what would you use? Because that's the term that... Sure, it's right... fine. But the point is, yeah. it's... But it, it, it's not so you can get everybody in a box and say, right. oh, you only get to go that far out. Look, um... But there are the realities of policy, because it's, it's so... It, it feels so partisan, and it, it never seems to end. It seems to get worse every year. It really, and I think it's real. I don't think it's just fakery. Oh, I, you know, you're before, right. before it was a little bit kabuki theater. Now it's quite real. It feels, or at least it feels that way. How do you change that? How do you get that? Because at some point, partisanship has got to end, correct? Or not? Maybe not. Well, it's, it's both halves. You do what you can from the inside. Um, you try to talk to as many people as you can. You keep offering ideas. Look, 
I have uh, co-sponsored a bill uh, uh, originally uh, uh, with Senator Coburn from Oklahoma. Uh, I think it's fair to say a very conservative Republican. Now he's gone, and now with Senator Lankford, also very conservative, because we come together on an issue about whether or not when the government makes these giant settlements uh, that it makes right now with the big financial institutions, but any kinds of these settlements for wrongdoing, whether or not the terms of the deal ought to be public so the American people can see it, uh, we both think it should be. And so we are working on a bill and trying to get it through both the Senate and the House. Almost got there uh, last time around with, with Senator Coburn in the last uh, session. Uh, we've started over and we've gotten it through committee now. Now there is a place where we reach out. But the other half, look, it's partly inside, person to person. These are things you care about. These are things I care about. How can we do these things together? And there, there are pieces where we can. It's also, though, about the outside, about trying to engage more people. I mean, you really do want to say to the American people, you realize we have not been able to get a basic transportation funding bill through in forever now. The, the, the American Society of Civil Engineers says that we, our backlog of how much we ought to be rebuilding our roads and bridges, that core infrastructure, power grids, is about $3.4 trillion in just deferred maintenance, what it's going to take to bring us up to 21st century standards. A 21st century country needs 21st century infrastructure. So how do you, That's not by, democratic how do you get that Republican. done from the outside? It, by getting more people engaged, by having more people who care who say to their representatives, who say to their senators, hey, listen, bud, you got to get this one done. Not fooling around, you got to get it done. And no more of this, you're going to get it for another six weeks or eight weeks, and, and you're going to do some accounting shenanigans so that you can pretend that it doesn't uh, add to the deficit and that it came out of some mythical pot of money where only unicorns feed at other hours. I mean, it's just crazy business that goes on the number of hours into this stuff. No, we actually need to belly up to the bar and say we got to spend money before it all falls down around our ears. Does that mean that, that the wealthy should pay more taxes? Look, I believe in progressive taxation. I believe that everybody should pay a fair share. Yes, I do. Do you I think, think we have a progressive tax structure now? In fact, maybe in theory, but in fact. I think we do not have a sufficiently progressive tax structure right now. And I think we have far too many corporate loopholes. I think that the only people who pay full freight on the corporate side are small businesses instead of big businesses. And I think that wildly disadvantages small businesses in America. And I think it's something every small business owner should be outraged about, that they're the ones who have to pay full freight and it's others who get away do, with moving their they, money overseas. Why do they general? I mean, I know I'm making a generalization here, and I don't have the data to back it up. But my impression You'll say is it anyway. that when poll, I will say it anyway because I'm a journalist and we're anecdotal. But most polls that I can recall show small businesses hate uh, higher taxes and actually are Republicans. Well, it, let me start with they hate higher taxes for themselves, and I get that. The problem is that 
we've got a tax system that, well, I just explained what I think the problem is, a tax system that is so laden, not just with loopholes, with loopholes that it takes $1,000 an hour lawyers to figure out how best to exploit. Now, who does that? You know, some startup business with eight employees? I don't think so. Who does that? Some, you know, somebody running a, a shop on the corner? I don't think so. Who does it? Giants do it. And that's how they make more money, is by paying less by exploiting these loopholes. And of course, this is where you asked me the question earlier, and we never got back to it, about is politics broken? Here's a big part of how it's broken. They then hire all the lobbyists in Washington to make sure that every one of those loopholes is carefully protected. Indeed, the perfect loophole for each of those lobbyists is a loophole that is exactly big enough for my client to slip through and not a single person. And so competition, instead of being competition to build the next great this or the next great piece of, of that or next great Just say hyperloop whenever you Whatever, right. okay. Instead of competition for that, it's competition to get Washington to give you a special break at her expense. And that's where politics, that? yeah, that's where politics is fundamentally so, broken. That's we only just have a few more minutes to talk. Let's talk about Massachusetts, a lot of medical device companies yep. and stuff. IP, very important to you, protection. Mm -hmm. um, where, where did, obviously here, it's an important thing. How do you look at that area? What do you mean, how do I, I mean, look? What, how, what do you imagine the laws in place are adequate to protect this kind of, to protect innovation? Well, you know, I... You focus on the middle class, but what other concerns, I'm trying, because that's one of the concerns, I know that this is your constituents who actually hired you. Exactly right, actually, and part of what I spend much of my time in Massachusetts and with my Massachusetts folks talking about is the tech industry, is biotech, particularly in Massachusetts. Right. And a big pitch of something that I've worked on, I kind of figure, you know, there are a limited number of things you can really focus on and try to make a difference. And for me, a big part of this one is trying to get more money into NIH. Uh, uh, because the way this industry works is a lot of, of tax money goes in, NIH does the, the long-term research, it gets picked up by a small, innovative, creative, who do the proof of concept, who say, wait, I can use that piece of research and turn it into this, I can make a modification there, I can do something else here. And then they, in turn, get bought up by the big drug companies uh, that see the product on through the FDA process. And that the middle part is vibrant, exciting. The big drug companies doing extraordinarily well. Uh, uh, producing what are now called blockbuster drugs, which is a term of art. It means more than a billion dollars in sales annually. We have more than a hundred of those. I mean, these are really big. The one that's drying up and in real trouble is the NIH. Uh, uh, it is the case now that only about one in seven grants gets approved. It's the lowest rate in an incredibly long time. Uh, uh, I talked I talk to my, um, uh, one of the people at one of the medical schools in Massachusetts just a few weeks ago was saying to me that he's competing to try to hang on to a young researcher. And who's he competing with? Another country for which this researcher has no ties, no familial ties. It's not, this is, this is someone who would have no reason to go to this country except the other country is willing to 
to fund that person's research, to promise there's going to be funding for the exciting idea you've got, so long as you'll come do it in our country and help us build the industry that will come from that, if it all pans out. I, How can we let that go in America? That's just crazy. I want to segue to trade. Um, a lot of the companies we write about, the tech companies, actually sell more than half of their stuff around the world overseas, and they, like many other companies that do a lot of business overseas, would like to see tariffs and quotas and stuff like that reduced. So there's been a general feeling that uh, these global or multinational trade packages are good, and yet you're, you're actually uh, battling it out with the, pre the president of your own party, who I think you've worked with many times on other issues, over this, this specific trade thing. And you explain why? Yeah. What's the so, problem? Look, What's the problem with trade? I like trade. There's no problem with trade. The problem is with this particular agreement and what's happening right now with what's called fast track authority. And fast track means that once it's passed by Congress, that Congress says when the next trade deal comes along, it'll pass with 51 votes rather than the 60 usually needed in the Senate to get legislation through. And you, senators, will have zero opportunity to uh, amend it, shape it in any way, slow it down, you'll have no leverage. In other words, if it can get 51 votes, that's why it's called fast track. It's done. Okay, so why would I have a problem with this? It's been done in the past. We've certainly done it in the past. Absolutely have done it in the past. But I have three problems with it. The first one is one of transparency. The TPP is basically done, largely done. It's got a few parts that are not quite finished yet. And yet, the American people aren't allowed to see it this is the before Pacific Partnership. This is the Pacific trade deal that's underway right now. And yet, the American people are not permitted to see it before we vote on fast track. But you're permitted to see it. I am permitted to see it, but by law, I can't talk about it. Really? Yeah. Not even here? Because we have an exception. Yeah, exactly right, because nobody would tell, right? Um, no. Uh, I go into a room when I want to look at it. Are you ready for this? Not only do I have to leave all of my electronics out, if I write a note on a piece of paper, they take it away from me when I live. This is uh, when I leave. So it's totally secret, except, and here's where I'm really bugged on process. There are more than 500 people who are not in government who've actually seen parts of it, maybe not all of it, but parts of it, and actually help shape the deal. They saw all the negotiating dress. Who are those people you Just might ask your yourself? Yeah, exactly right. Well, the answer is this is 28 working groups on different topic areas. 85% of them come, they are either senior executives at the companies that will be directly affected by the, the trade deals, or they are the lobbyists for those industries that are going to be affected here. So that leaves 15% for any other vote, voices in the process. And my view is we should not vote fast track without seeing the deal. I want to see what the terms of the deal are, because not all trade deals have worked out too great for us. I want to see what the terms of the, I want the American public to be able to see it. I want to be able to see it at a time when I can get up and debate it with people and talk about it in an open forum. So mine is a transparency. I'll do the other two as quick as I can. The second one, don't go to sleep on this, is called Investor State Dispute Resolution. No, oh, you've lost us. Go ahead. Uh, I know, I know. But this one is actually amazing. So
this one started back in the 1950s. And uh, uh, we started putting them in trade deals. And basically what it was for is uh, when uh, a country, uh, the government changed and they were worried that they were going to seize the factory that some foreign investor had just put in. The foreign investor wanted to be able to sue the country directly, right, right. okay? And that's how it was used for about 50 years. There were fewer than 100 of these cases in total. And then the corporate lawyers figured it out. And they said, wait a minute, there's another way to use this. You can use this to beat down regulations that you don't like. And so they started using it for other things. So uh, Australia uh, and Uruguay got sued over their tobacco regulations, uh, which they had passed to try to have fewer people smoke. But tobacco companies said, hey, we foreign ones said, we don't like that. Uh, Canada right. got sued over environmental. Right, so that's your second one. So that's my second one. I don't. I think this is a really dangerous thing for the United States to do. These are independent arbitration panels. They never go through the American court system. And by the way, I should point out, you talk about politics being broken. This is an area where the Cato Institute says we should get rid of investor state dispute resolution. We walk okay. arm in arm on this. The third thing. And the third thing on this is the investor state dispute, uh, I'm sorry, the um, fast track is six years. So we're not only agreeing to fast track this deal in the Pacific for this president with President Obama, we've signed on to fast track any trade deal that any future president wants to cut with any country on a vote of 51, no amendments, no seeing it, right? You just pass this thing, you zip this thing through. And that really worries me, and it particularly worries me because the European negotiators, those, those negotiations have already started, they want to talk about financial regulation. And the big lobbying groups for the banking industry have already said that they want to see robust provisions. And I guarantee robust does not mean more accountability for big financial institutions. Right. Is it so, a problem? We, we're going to go to questions, sure. but just to, this has caused a rift between you and the president. I well, mean, the president has actually named you multiple times in remarks as being wrong. I mean, she's a good senator, but she's totally wrong on this, blah, blah, blah. Is, is that, is that, does that A, bother you, and B, hinder your ability to do your job? You know, this is not personal for me. This, this, this is the same work I've been doing all along. It's about how we strengthen and grow this country. Right. And does I, it bug you that you're, you, you and the president are on... We disagree on this. We, we disagree. And I don't take this personally, but I'm going to fight for what I believe in. That's what the people of Massachusetts sent me to Washington to do. Yes. Let me ask you the final question. Sure. Do you, do, you, do you consider yourself a technology person? Do you like technology? I like it. What do you use? Just curious. What do, you, do you use an iPhone? I have an iPhone, yeah. Anything else? iPad, laptop. Mm -hmm. I only use laptop. I don't use, I don't, I don't like docking it. I do everything on my knees. Right. Okay. Right? And you use I write books internet on my services. knees. You use internet Great services. Knees. Do you use Snapchat? Yeah. No, I haven't yet. Okay. They're making it easier for you. Does it bother um, you that your iPhone is made in China by low wage workers? Yeah. Okay. All right. Questions from the audience? Hi, Senator Warren. I'm Matt Honan with uh, BuzzFeed News. Um, 
A lot of the big startup, on-demand startups now use 1099 contractors to staff their services, like Uber and Lyft. Uh, do you think that these contractors should be classified as employees? You know, I think it's hard to do the generalization, but I think there are two things we have to acknowledge. The first one is work is changing in America. You know, the, the old notion you work for one employer, you know, forever and ever, that's just gone. People are going to piece together a lot of different work and a lot of different kinds of work over the arc of a career. And I just make a pitch off to the side if I can. This is partly why we need to work on Social Security, because this is going to be the foundational retirement part, because everybody keeps pitching into it as we go along, but that's a separate discussion we should have. So part one is work is changing. But part two is I think there is evidence that increasingly uh, employers use independent contractors not in ways that were originally intended, but in ways that permit them to treat employment laws differently than they otherwise would be responsible for. And I think that's a real problem, and I think the Department of Labor is looking into this, and I think they're right to do that. Stephen? Uh, thank you. Um, so I have a house in western Massachusetts. Good. It's, got, it's got no broadband. It's an inconvenience for me, but it's really a huge problem for the families and businesses yep. in that area. It's also a uh, sort of little slice of a much bigger problem in the United States where we're paying too much for broadband, we don't get high speeds, uh, and all because of a concentration of power uh, where there's very little competition. What could be done about that? And specifically, what are you doing for us folks in Western Massachusetts? Okay, so it's a perfect question. Thank you very much. Uh, and he that wants is, his internet fix. Uh, that's right. But broadband is a big part of what we're trying to do for Western Massachusetts, and that is to make the investment. There's the classic infrastructure investment. Uh, some of it, some of Western Massachusetts got opened up when we started in uh, 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 in spending the money uh, during the financial crisis, right, as we came out and we're, we're trying to spend and, 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 and get some stimulus into the economy. But Western Massachusetts is actually a perfect place to understand this. It is, it's a beautiful area for any of you who've never been there. It's one of those that with a few key pieces of infrastructure and a little more investment on the educational side Western Massachusetts could, could blossom, could, could, could grow, could be a place of innovation and job growth, but it's choked off because of transportation infrastructure being weak and choked off because of the lack of access to the, to the internet. I should add a third one. Uh, we also have high utility costs that we need to deal with, and this is another part of infrastructure investment. The answer is we've got to build a future, and we've got to build a future for Western Massachusetts. We've got to build a future for the whole country. But are you going to break up? What's your plan? How do, how do, you, how do we and What's do the exact plan? What are you going to do? So look, this is part of what... What are you going to do about his broadband? <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, so, about the broadband. No, I'm I am serious. We've got to put the money into infrastructure. This goes back to my point that... So three, the government should the provide three, broadband? The government should be building the infrastructure. That is part of what government does. It does roads, it does bridges, it does power. It helps build infrastructure. So you can use it, everyone else can use it, businesses can use it, businesses can build their businesses on it. It's the heart of how we build a future that is private. This is that you you build these businesses right. privately, but right. you gotta but have the heart. Can I just clarify? Are you 
putting broadband in that same no, category? I, I'm, you'll have broadband companies, but there's infrastructure that underlies it. And that's the part we invest okay. in. Okay, let's get to all the questions because there's only there. six minutes left. Hi, Go ahead, yeah. quickly, so we can answer. So, so you spoke earlier about the best way to affect change is to get in touch with our elected officials. And it's literally impossible. The technology is so outdated. You I have know. to use old form letters, write letters. I mean, do you do you foresee or do you yourself plan on doing anything to make it easier? Because right now Twitter and Facebook is just open to people who are outside districts. It doesn't really affect much change when it comes to getting in touch with okay. elected officials. And two, do you think we'll ever see a voting app or a way to make voting easier in our lifetime? Because it's preventing a lot of young people. So let me, let me just do the part about Facebook and Twitter. The fact... That I think they're enormously valuable to elected officials. And the fact that it doesn't sort through whether or not you are a, a constituent from Massachusetts or whether you come from somewhere else, I still think it's important that people hear and that breaking through the bubble of Washington that is so controlled by the lobbyists and the lawyers day after day after day and saying, I'm going to write another letter, and I'm going to get my friends to write. However, I am going to get in touch with my family in Texas and ask them in particular to write and call the two senators from the state of Texas. It is part of this, but I don't want you to dismiss it. I know it's hard, and I know that Washington ought to do better on this. Uh, you're going to hear from the chief technology officer, I think, next, no, no, and, no. Uh, and uh, go after her on it. But let's talk about voting at some point, too. Okay. okay. Over here. All right. Hi, Asif Khan with Shack News. I appreciate your uh, passion about infrastructure rebuilding in America, but it really feels like we've gone from being proactive to reactive with the uh, bridge that collapsed in Minnesota, yeah. I-35. Um, one aspect of it that I think is really affecting us is that in the last seven to ten years, we've spent $3 trillion on war, another $4 trillion monetizing our debt through quantitative easing, and you just said off the cuff that we need $3.5 trillion. Uh, Congress can't get a budget that lasts for lo longer than two years. You're constantly rolling over our debt on a two-year basis because interest rates are so low. So low. Um, in that environment, how am I, or the 50% of people who can vote that don't, supposed to actually believe any politician that says that we are going to rebuild this country and that energy infrastructure, internet infrastructure, education, all these things matter. I, I believe that, and with interest rates as low, it makes sense for us to issue paper on 30 or 100 year notes to rebuild America. Why aren't we doing that? This, we're, this no. is the wonkiest code ever, but go, go answer that question. It, it is exactly the right question. We are not doing it because the people in Washington, too many of the people in Washington, do not represent the folks who elected them. They represent the rich and the powerful, who don't want their taxes raised, who don't want to see any change, who are perfectly happy with things where they are. Indeed, they're doing great with things where they are. And they stay in the ear of enough of the folks in Washington that it has made it almost impossible to get any kind of change. The only way we get change is when enough people in this country say, um, 
mad as hell and I'm fed up and I'm not going to do this anymore. You are not going to go back and represent me in Washington, D.C. if you are not willing to pass a meaningful infrastructure bill. If you are not willing to refinance student loan interest rates and stop dragging in billions of dollars in profits off the backs of kids who otherwise can't afford to go to college. If you don't say you're going to fund the NIH and the NISF because that is our future. We have to make these issues salient and not just wonky. When you hear us talk about this and you say, this is like the wonkiest conference ever. Can you imagine saying that at a tech conference? When you say this is the wonkiest yeah. conference we've I ever had, no. These have to be the things that you wake up people all over America and say, what matters for whether or not you're going to have a job, whether or not you're going to have a retirement, whether or not your kids are going to have any chance to build a future for them. It's got to be about these core issues, and we got to talk about them, talk about them enough until there's some real change in this country. That's all I know to do. That's all I know. One, one more. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Sandra. This is Leah Sherry Qualcomm. Um, I've heard today that you may move Hillary slightly to the left of her left. Yes. So how are you going to make sure that your passion for and your platform is actually infused into the next election? Number one, and quick second part to that question is, do you see millennials are the folks that are actually going to push the party to, to convey that message? So I, I don't know. I, I appreciate the question you're asking and you know the metaphor you're using here. For me, this is just talking about what matters, and I don't know any other way to do this. Mm -hmm. This, I didn't wake up one day and say, "Oh, now I'm going to be a political genius." I have been working on this same set of issues for decades, and I have watched year after year after year as America's middle class is just hollowed out as opportunities for those right at the top continue to soar, but for everyone else's kids keep contracting. And I see a piece of that, a big piece of that, is what's happening in Washington. And all I know to do is to continue to talk about it, to keep fighting about what it. What about her point about millennials? I think the millennials, I, I actually feel encouraged. Um, I think the millennials start with a good heart. Uh, to the extent you're allowed to generalize about any group, and I'd be really chapped if they were generalizing about my group, so, you know, but, but they start with a good heart. They start with a heart that understands, at least this is what I, I see, that understands that, that we do build things together. And that when you pitch in some, and you pitch in some, and you pitch in some, that we have opportunities to create more for everybody and, and that really embrace diversity of, of thought and approach in a way that I think their generational elders uh, haven't really had the opportunities to do. So look, you talk about what America's comparative advantages are. That's supposed to be at the heart of them. We believe in opportunity, and we are a nation built out of different people who came at ideas in different ways, and that is our strength. I think they're going to make something really great from that. Thank you God, very I much. God, I hope so. Senator Elizabeth Warren. Thank you. Thank you.